You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, you're going to gonna, you're gonna have to forgive my voice. Uh, I've got a little bit of a cold, or as Moses would say, I am hoarse of throat and stuffy of nose. Send someone else. Um, but uh, I am excited about opening up this word uh, with you this morning. So this is a strange chapter of the Bible. Uh, There's lots of supernatural. Um, There's lots of weird. Um, It's packed with features that echo through the pages of the scriptures. There's a a staff that turns into a serpent. There's leprosy, that dreaded skin disease that leaves its mark from Leviticus all the way to the Gospels. There's the infamous Nile River where Pharaoh sought to drown the Hebrew boys. We have two meetings at the mountain of God, one between Moses and Yahweh and one between Moses and Aaron. And then we have references to firstborn sons, anticipations of the plagues on Egypt. And then the strangest passage of them all, this circumcision and bridegroom of blood bit at the end of chapter four. And passages like this, if you're like me, immediately provoke all kinds of questions. Like, why does God give Moses these three particular signs? Is there a deeper meaning to them? Is it just three magic tricks? Or is there meant to, are they meant to communicate something about God? Why does God mention the firstborn son already? Moses hasn't even gone to Pharaoh yet. Why bring that up yet? The angel of death doesn't show up until Exodus 11 and 12. But here in chapter four, before Moses even gets there, we already have a promise of hardening of Pharaoh and threats of death. And then of course, the bizarre passage about Zipporah. Why does God want to kill Moses? Why does Zipporah think that circumcising Gershom will help? Um, And why does it in fact help? Why does she touch the legs with the blood? It's a very strange passage of scripture. And so I want to say something at the outset about how we should approach strange passages in scripture. If you remember back when we were in Genesis, some of you will remember this. um, I had the privilege of preaching on Genesis 15 where Abraham believes God and it's credited to him as righteousness. And then immediately after that, God tells him, hey, cut some animals in half, take this flaming fire pot and like walk through them. And then, you know, so... um, That was another one of those passages where there was some simple and straightforward things, and then there were some strange things, bizarre things. What is going on here? And in general, you should should think this. Um, I don't ever want to let the strange keep me from the simple, and I don't want to let the simple keep me from the strange. Okay? So there's strange things in the Bible, things that puzzle us. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm going to talk about what I think is happening here. I'm not entirely sure that I've got it. I think that if I knew my Bible better, I would have a better understanding of this passage. I think this is one of those passages where if you know more of the, the details of Scripture everywhere else, things would light up here that don't. Um, but I don't want to let the strange, the weird, and the deep keep me from the simple and the obvious and the basic. And there, are, there is simple, obvious, and basic. So I'm going to do both this morning. I'm going to talk about some things that I think we can take straight across and bring home to us. And then I want to try to delve into that deep and that weird and say, is there, are, is there something here, even here in this weird that we can learn from? So to begin... Chapter 4, verses 1 to 17, is an extension of chapter 3. There probably shouldn't even be a chapter break there. That's not a good... Like sometimes the, when they added the chapters to the Bible, they put them in odd places. This is an odd place. 
this is simply the continuing conversation between the Lord and Moses on the mountain. And this conversation is structured around five questions or statements from Moses, two of them in chapter three and three of them in chapter four. And if we pay attention, we'll see that this conversation is progressing and building and escalating. As Pastor Jonathan noted last week, Yahweh begins by testifying, I've seen the affliction of my people. I've heard their cry. I've come to deliver them from bondage and take them to the land flowing with milk and honey. And I'm going to use you to do it, Moses. And so Moses, in chapter 3, verse 11, after God says, I'm coming to do it, and you're the guy, Moses has a question. Who am I, verse 11, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So Moses' first question is about himself and his identity. Who am I? Like, I'm nobody. Who am I to go do that? What you just said is an amazing thing. Who am I to do that? Moses feels his inadequacy and he voices it to God. And God responds and says, I will be with you. And this will be a sign for you. After you've brought them out, you will serve God on this holy mountain. So Moses first expresses inadequacy and God promises presence and his sufficiency. And so Moses naturally asks, well, who are you? What's your name? What should I tell the people when they, when I go, what am I going to tell the people who sent me? And then God responds with his personal, his covenantal name. I am who I am. I am Yahweh, the one who was and is and is to come, the self-existent, self-sufficient, sovereign, causer of all things that are. I am God. I am Yahweh. And so go at Moses, gather the elders Tell them that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent you to deliver him. They will listen to you, God says. Pharaoh won't listen to you at first, but I'll make him. I will compel him with a mighty hand. He will let the people go. So, God, who am I to do that? I'll be with you. Yeah, but who are you? I am God, the covenant God of your fathers, and I am the one who made everything. I will get this done. Then Moses objects. Again, now we're in chapter 4. What if the elders won't listen to me? What if they don't believe me? What if they say, God didn't appear to you, old man. Go back, keep your sheep. And so God gives Moses three signs that are designed to persuade the elders of Israel that the sovereign God, the author of everything, the Lord, is with Moses. So he can turn his staff into a serpent and back again. He can make his hand leprous and then whole again. And if the first two don't work, pour some water from the Nile on the ground and watch it turn to blood. Don't worry, Moses. They will believe you. But Moses is still not convinced. He still feels that inadequacy. I'm not eloquent, he says. Never have been, never will be. I am slow of speech and of tongue. God, you've got the wrong guy. Now, here's the thing. We actually don't have any evidence that Moses was slow of speech and of tongue. Like, actually, like he, he speaks a lot. By the book of Deuteronomy, like he, like it's a, the book of Deuteronomy is one long speech from Moses. But he protests anyway, and God reminds him, Moses, who, who am I? Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Who does all of those things? Is it not I, Yahweh? So go, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. In other words, 
Moses, I'm Yahweh. I am the author of everything. I made your mouth. And when I said earlier that I will be with you, I mean that I will be with you, every part of you, including your mouth. I will be with your mouth. I will speak through you. I am God. Stop protesting. Now, I think that up until that point, Moses is showing an appropriate humility and asking appropriate questions. God, who am I to do this? Who, who are you? What if they don't believe me? I'm not sure that I'm up to this. Up, up till that point, I think Moses is showing appropriate humility. Who am I? Who are you? What if they don't listen? What if I'm not enough? And then the Lord is drawing out Moses' fears and he points him to the presence and the power of Almighty God. But then Moses crosses a line. His humility ceases to be humility and actually becomes pride. It becomes defiance. Send someone else, he says. Now that right there is unbelief. It was humility. It was, God, I know how weak I am. Just like Brett was saying, I know, I know who I am. I know I'm not enough. That was humility. And then it crossed the line to unbelief. God just said, Moses, I know who you are. Let me tell you who I am. Let me show you what I can do. I will be with you every step of the way. And Moses says, yeah, that's not good enough. Send somebody else. And so here's the simple in this passage, I think. There's a simple and straightforward lesson for all of us today. And it's a lesson about humility and the dangers of it. Now, most of us recognize the dangers of pride. Like if God had showed up to Moses and said, hey, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh to lead my people out. And Moses said, well, of course. Like, why wouldn't you? I got this. Started singing that song from Moana, right? We would all recognize the pride and self-reliance beneath it. But what this passage is showing us is that pride can hide behind a show of humility. Underneath humility, there can be a rock-hard, cancerous kernel of pride. It's so subtle and so slippery. It works its way into everything, even our sense of inadequacy. Moses says, I know my weaknesses, and not even Yahweh, not even the God who is, not even you, Lord, can use me. That's pride. It looks humble. It sounds humble, but it doesn't please God. The Lord is not hampered by your weaknesses. Who made man's mouth? He's not hindered by your personality or your past. And if you use your weaknesses and your shortcomings as an excuse for disobedience, then the Lord may give you a little growl like he does to Moses here. His anger may rise up. Instead, instead of that, instead of using your weaknesses and inadequacies as an excuse to disobey, instead, know who you are. Feel your insufficiency and your weakness. And then remember who God is. Remember what he can do and obey. That's the simple that's the simple in this passage. Now notice that God's anger at Moses doesn't lead him to discard Moses entirely. Even in the midst of the pride and the defiance, God says, you're not getting off the hook that easy. 
Moses isn't getting out of it. Instead, God says, I'm going to give you some help. And so he enlists Aaron, Moses' brother, as a spokesman. And what's interesting to me here is this establishes, I think, an important pattern that's going to show up in the rest of the Old Testament. Moses is the prophet. Moses is the one who stands before God face to face and God, know, and God reveals what God, who God is and what he's going to do. As the prophet, he speaks to the people on behalf of God. Or as God says here, the prophet is as God to the people. When you see the prophet speaking, the prophet is saying, thus saith the Lord. I've stood in his presence. This is what he says. But Aaron, Aaron is the priest. Aaron, the priest, simply repeats the words that the prophet has said. So, so you have this movement, this pattern from God to the prophet, and then from the prophet to the priest, and then the priest to the people. And that's basically going to be the way that the Old Testament operates for the rest of, of the Old Testament. Like, it's going to be God speaking to his prophets, his prophets revealing things, and then the priests are the guardians and the keepers of that. They don't add anything new. They explain what, it, what God already said. It's the prophets are the ones who stand before God. And so even here, what's interesting to me about this is that Moses' inadequacy, his sin, his rebellion is what helps to establish this pattern of God going God to prophet to priest to people. The encounter with God here then ends with a reminder, hey, don't forget the staff. The staff will be important. This is now, this isn't just Moses' staff, right? So Moses walks in, he's a shepherd, he's got a staff, okay? By the end of the passage, what's interesting is it's the staff of God. It's the staff of God. Moses walked in there with, it was the staff of Moses. It's what I used to fight off wolves to protect the sheep. It's what I used to walk because I'm in my 80s and it's hard, okay? So it's my staff. And by the end, God's like, that's my staff, Watch what I will do with my staff. Don't forget to take my staff. I've, I've claimed it now. It's mine. Remember it. The staff will be the visible means for doing the signs and wonders before the elders and then before Pharaoh. And so before moving on, I want us to consider, is there some meaning in these signs? Why these three? I suspect that there's layers of meaning in things that I'm not even seeing. But here's to me what seems relatively odd, obvious. Number one, that first sign, the staff into a serpent, demonstrates Yahweh's power over nature. Okay? He's not bound and restricted by the laws of nature. He made the laws of nature. The laws of nature are his normal and usual way of running the world, but he is capable of altering them, not breaking them. He doesn't need to break his own laws, but he can alter them of showing his power and might over them in order to remind us that while we may be bound by the laws of nature, he is not. And so the first sign that, Moses get, that God gives to Moses is, hey, make sure the people know I am Lord over nature. Second, the leprous hand. This shows Yahweh's power to curse and to bless, to wound and to heal. Leprosy in the ancient world is a sign of uncleanness. It was a terrifying disease. In Israel, the leprous will be shunned. They will be kept out of God's holy place. Later, Moses' sister Miriam will be struck with leprosy because she defies Moses, the prophet of God. And so there, it's a sign of judgment. This is a sign, is meant to show the elders, their God can curse and their God can heal. 
Their God will curse those who curse them and bless those who bless them, which ought to remind them he is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And then sign three is even more specific. This isn't just power over nature, like the staff and the serpent. Turning the Nile to blood puts a target on Egypt. The Nile is the sacred river of Egypt. The Egyptians worshiped the Nile as a deity. And Yahweh makes their God bleed. God makes their God bleed. I can turn that water, which to them is life because they live in a desert, I can turn it into blood like that. I am God over Egypt. And so these signs together show us that Yahweh is the creator God, the maker of heaven and earth. He is the judge and the healer, the God who curses and blesses, who wounds and restores. And he is the warrior God who fights for his people and will bring ruin to their oppressors. Those are the signs that Moses is to show the elders in order to awaken their faith that Moses is God's man and that God is with him to deliver. So that's the first part of the passage, okay? The first part just ends what we did last week on the mountain of God as God commissions Moses to be his man on the ground. Now, the rest of the passage is the return to Egypt. And there are five elements that we see in the remainder of, that, of this passage. There's five steps that Moses takes on his journey back to Egypt, Number one, Moses says he's going to return to Egypt to see whether his brothers are still alive. And then notice that God assures him that those who sought his life are dead. And I think there's, we're meant to see something important in that juxtaposition. So he says to Jethro, let me go back. This is verse 18. To my brothers to see whether they are still alive. The last reference to brothers in Exodus is earlier when Moses goes out to see his brothers, to see their burdens, and he sees one of his brothers being mistreated by an Egyptian. And he says, I need to go back and see, are they still okay? It's been 40 years. Did, Mo did Pharaoh just wipe them out? And then God comes to him at that same moment and says, go back to Egypt. All the men who were seeking your life are dead. There's an irony here. The Pharaoh had sought to kill the sons of Israel, Moses and his brothers. 80 years later, Pharaoh is dead, Moses and his brothers still alive. God is with them. He's preserving them. He is keeping them. That's the first step on the way back. Second, Yahweh tells Moses what's to come. He says, go, perform the signs before Pharaoh, but I will harden his heart so that he will refuse. And then you will say to him, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go, or I will kill your firstborn son. Now, in a, in a future sermon, we're going to talk about this hardening of Pharaoh's heart. We're just Because it comes up again and again. And so we'll look in detail at all of these, okay? For now, I want us to think about why does God include the threat against the firstborn already? Like, why bring that piece up here? It seems to me an odd place for it. I'll come back to that in a moment. I just want to flag, this is an odd place for the reference, this anticipation of the Passover, when the angel of death will come to slay the firstborn of Egypt while the Hebrews hide in their homes. Third, third step. So first we have, um, I'm going to see if they're alive. Pharaoh's dead. Second, Moses, here's what's coming. Hardening of Pharaoh, threat against the Egyptian firstborn. Third, this strange incident at the inn on the way to Egypt with Zipporah and Gershom. 
We'll say more about that in a minute. And then fourth, Moses meets Aaron back at that same mountain of God. So you have to think, get your geography a little bit. Midian is to the east, probably of where Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb is. And so Moses had been shepherding, had been had the flocks up and around on the Sinai Peninsula, saw the burning bush, goes up to the mountain of God, comes back down and goes to Midian, back to his father-in-law. And then now he's on his way back to Egypt. And on the way back, God comes to Aaron, who is in Egypt, and says, hey, go out and meet Moses halfway. And so they both meet at the mountain of God, and they form their team. Moses tells him the plan, shows him the signs. Look, here's what God told me to do. Here's what I can do, right? Watch this. Let's go tell the people. And Aaron is now on board. God is with them. And then finally... The chapter ends with the two of them gathering the elders of Israel. Notice, God sends them to the elders and the people first, before they go to Pharaoh, before the main event, before the big fireworks display. It's, hey, guys, you need to know God is here. He's coming. Get ready. Believe. Aaron speaks. Moses does the signs. The people believed. And when they heard that Yahweh had visited the people of Israel, that he'd seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. After 400 years, Yahweh is on the move. They've seen the signs. They know he rules nature. He curses. He blesses. He can crush the gods of Egypt. And he has seen our affliction. He has heard our cries. And he's come to deliver us. That's where the chapter ends. Now, what is the deal with this strange story in the middle? With Zipporah and Gershom, Moses' son. So it's got a number of puzzles, okay? Let me just jump through. I spent a lot of time on this part. And boy, there are some weird things about this passage that people come up with. First, it's not exactly clear what's happening, okay? Here's the way the passage literally reads. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched his feet. Your ESV says Moses' feet. In the Hebrew, it's just his and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So it's unclear who the him is. Is it Moses? I read some commentators who are like, it's clearly Moses. God wants to kill Moses. And so she circumcises and puts the blood on Moses' feet. Other commentator says, no, no, no. God, what, was the, what did God just said? I will kill your firstborn son. And so who's God coming after? It's the firstborn son. It's Gershom. Gershom's the target. And so there was back and forth about that. Why does God then want to put Moses or Gershom, whichever one, to death? What did they do wrong? How does circumcision fix it? And why, why is it not just a circumcision, but a circumcision with this odd touching blood to the legs? That's what's strange. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. I am not entirely sure. I really am not entirely sure. I have some ideas. I've gotten some help from some scholars. So let me try to unpack not just what I think the passage says, but how I went about getting there. Okay? So when I come into to puzzling passages like this, one of the things I often do is I look at literary structure. 
Okay. I have a book by David Dorsey. I'm going to link it in the sermon manuscript. If you want to go pick it up, it's called the literary structure of the old Testament. And it's basically a book by book where the guy is going through and noting patterns of structure in the text that help us understand. So whenever I'm preaching on the old Testament, it's one of my go-to's. It helps me to see how does this passage fit into the big picture. And so uh, the Bible, I think, is a carefully structured book. When biblical authors tell a story, they often put things in particular places. One of the most common structures that they use is called a chiasm. Now, I think we've talked about this at previous sermons, but let me remind you what a chiasm is. You can think of it like a mirror, where, so you have a whole passage and slice it down the middle and they're mirror images of each other. Whatever's on one side is going to show up on the other side. Or if you want to change the image, think of it like a mountain so that you have one side of the mountain and the other side. And so usually what happens is what's over here, number one, is going to correspond to what's over here. And then this is going to correspond to this, moving up the mountain. And then third and third and fourth and fourth all the way up to the top. And the top is going to be the center and so you're going to, as you read through the passage, it's like you're walking up and then you're coming back down. Does that make sense? That's a very common literary structure in our Bible. Now, in this story, Dorsey, I think, persuasively notes that the entire first six chapters of Exodus seem to be one big chiasm. So listen, just real quick, and see if you can remember what we've seen, and then I'm going to tell you a little preview of what's coming, and you can look in your Bible and look at headings and go, oh yeah, that's there. Okay? So the first thing in chapter one is oppression by Pharaoh through taskmasters, through heavy labor, because the people are too many. That's the first thing that we see in the book of Exodus. Well, what's coming in chapter 5 up through chapter 6 is the same thing. Pharaoh is going to oppress the people through taskmasters and heavy labor because the people are too many. So from chapter 5, verse 5 to chapter 6, verse 13, we get the mirror of chapter 1. Does that make sense? Okay, so now let's, so what we're going to do, so that's the bookends. Now let's move a step forward into chapter 2 and then a step backward from chapter 5, verse 5. What do we find? Uh, the second step, Moses comes to Pharaoh's house as a baby, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. So this is the, what Pastor David preached on when Moses is in the reeds in the thing and, and gets rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. Well, what's right before at the beginning of chapter 5? Moses and Aaron come back to Pharaoh's house as adults. So Pharaoh's house is a child. Pharaoh's house is an adult. So again, working back up. Third step. Moses leaves Egypt to go to Midian because he's after he's been rejected by his brothers. Who are you? Are you a ruler and judge? And he marries Zipporah, and they have a child, Gershom. That's the third step up the mountain. Well, what corresponds to that? Well, it's Moses returns to Egypt with Zipporah and Gershom, and this time he's accepted by his brothers. He's not rejected. He's accepted. Does that make sense? So there's kind of that mirroring again. And then what, that, what does that mean? What's in the middle? What's smack dab in the middle? Answer, the mountain of God. Moses getting his commission. So the passage has, it builds up to the mountain where God says, I am who I am, go. And then it comes back down the mountain as Moses returns and you get the mirror on both sides. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's the structure. That was the first thing I did. I don't know what's going on. Let's look at structure. Well, that's the big structure. And other commentators actually go further and they say, even within these sections, there's many structures. So it's like layers upon layers of, of the way things works. And so um, they draw up more connections. Now, 
One thing that that chiasm does for me is it gives me a paired item on one side that I can compare it to on the other side, and maybe what was on the other on the first side will help me understand the other side. Does that make sense? Like if there's paired items, I can go. Let me read this to understand that. So, in the present passage, what do we have? We have God seeking to kill Moses. Have we seen anything like that before? Has there been anything like that previous back in the earlier sections? And the answer is yes. Exodus 2.15. Exodus 2.15 says, when, um, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. Now, in the Hebrew, that's almost identical. This one says Moses, the other one just says him. But the passages, it's the same words, and it's almost identical. And they happen to be in the same spot on either side of our mountain. And so that makes me go, huh, I wonder if there's a connection. I wonder if we think about why Moses was, why Pharaoh wanted to kill Moses, if that will help us understand why God wants to kill Moses. Does that make sense? That was the next step. Okay. So why does Pharaoh seek to kill Moses? Well, in the passage it says, when Pharaoh heard of it, it literally says, when Pharaoh heard the thing. That's what it says, the thing, Davars, Hebrew. When Pharaoh heard the thing, what's, what's the thing? What thing did Pharaoh hear? Well, look at the previous verse, chapter 2, verse 14. Moses says, the thing is known. And you go, okay, what's the thing? What thing? Answer, his killing of the Egyptian. But if we look carefully at that passage, the story about the killing of the Egyptian isn't really just about the killing of an isolated man. Remember that there were two incidents. This is what Pastor David preached on a while ago. Moses comes out from Pharaoh's house. He's going to look on the burdens of his brothers. He knows, I'm, an, I'm a Hebrew. I'm going to see how my brethren are doing under these burdens. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brothers. It, it, it emphasizes it, chapter 2, verse 11. It emphasizes one of his brothers. And so he strikes down the Egyptian and hides the body. Next day, two Hebrews are fighting. Moses rebukes the one that's in the wrong, and the one who's in the wrong then turns on him and says, who made you prince and judge over us? You going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? So what's going on there? The question is, what is Moses really up to here? Is he just defending his people as a brother? Like, was this like one brother protecting another brother? Or is he setting himself up as an Egyptian ruler? I'm a prince. I'm a judge over you. I'm now in charge of all of this. That's the fundamental issue in both of those events. What is Moses really doing? And Moses is afraid because the thing is known. Not just the killing of the Egyptian, but the question of who Moses is. What is Moses up to? Who is Moses really? That's what Pharaoh hears, and that's why Pharaoh seeks to kill Moses. Where are Moses' true loyalties? Is he a Hebrew brother? Is he trying to be an Egyptian prince? If he's trying to be an Egyptian prince and ruler, is he a threat to Pharaoh? Is he trying to be a little mini Pharaoh? And therefore, Pharaoh seeks to kill him. Now, what's interesting to me about reading that passage and seeing all of that is that in the book of Acts, this was the next step. Uh, as Pastor Jonathan said, sometimes the best commentary on the Old Testament is your New Testament. Well, in the book of Acts, when Stephen is giving his speech and he mentions Moses, he talks about Moses, and he talks about this incident. Listen to what Stephen says. He, Stephen says, Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they didn't understand. 
In other words, Stephen tells us Moses' motive was to deliver his brethren from their labor and oppression. He, he feels the call of God on his life. That's why he goes out to see the burdens. And slaying the Egyptian is like an early attempt to fulfill God's call. Like, I'm, God's called me to deliver them. Let's start with that guy, right? And so slaying the Egyptian is the early attempt, but God is not going to deliver his people through Moses' arm. He's going to deliver his people through his own mighty hand and outstretched arm, through signs and wonders. Now, incidentally, a little parenthesis, I think that that earlier incident where Moses kind of jumped the gun and tried to deliver the people on his own is why he's so reluctant when he meets God on the mountain. Like, why is he like, God, I can't do this. I can't do this. Why, why does he doubt that the people will believe that God has appeared to them? Because they already did. Who made you? I'm going to go to them, God. I'm going to say, hey, God told me to come deliver you. And they're going to go, who made you ruler and judge over us? He's already had this conversation. He's afraid it's going to go the same way. He's spent 40 years in a wilderness thinking about that conversation. And going, I could have sworn that God was going to deliver the people through me, and it didn't happen. And now I'm a shepherd in Midian, and I don't know what my life's all about. And then God shows up. He knows he's not enough. He knows I've already failed. And so God says, no, but this time, I'm going to use you. I've got a plan, and I've given you signs. Let's close that now. So back to, we're still trying to get, get what the circumcision thing is. Chapter 2 when Pharaoh seeks to kill Moses, is about Moses' ultimate loyalties and who he is. What is his standing? Is he a brother of the Hebrews or is he a prince of Egypt? That's the question that the Hebrews and Pharaoh have. That's why Pharaoh seeks to kill him. Because Moses appears to be attempting to assert his authority through violence. Now, when you jump forward and you think about chapter 4 that way, don't we have the same issue? Moses has been commissioned by God to deliver the people formally. He has the staff of God in his hand, chapter 4, verse 20. But he has not circumcised his son. So where are his true loyalties? Who is Moses really? Is Moses really all in? Is he a son of Israel or is he an Egyptian prince? It's unclear where his loyalties lie. Is he God's prophet or is he setting himself up as a political rival to Pharaoh? I think that's why God seeks to kill him. Because Moses has not gone all in. And it's why then Zipporah says, how do we communicate to God? How do we show God that this family, this family is a Hebrew family. This family is a Jewish family. This family is one of the brothers. Answer, you circumcise your son. And it sets aside God's anger. Like Abraham, like Isaac and Jacob, Moses must be bound to Yahweh by blood, by covenant, by circumcision. So that's what I think is going on in the weird. I think there's one additional layer, and this is where we'll land the plane. In Exodus 2, Moses is placed in a basket and set loose in the Nile River. And as Pastor David noted in his sermon, that made us think about the story of Noah, right? Moses has his own little tiny ark. It's covered in bitumen and pitch, just like Noah's ark. And like Noah, God delivers him through the waters. But salvation through waters doesn't just look backward to the flood. It looks forward. God's deliverance of Moses through the waters 
anticipates that greater passage through the waters later in the book of Exodus when God delivers the whole people through the waters. Just as Moses is saved from the waters of the Nile when Pharaoh seeks his life, so the Hebrews will be saved through the waters of the Red Sea when Pharaoh seeks their lives. Moses, in other words, has a mini exodus in his infancy. With that pattern in mind, consider what's happening here. God threatens the firstborn of Egypt. If Pharaoh will not let my firstborn son go, I will kill his firstborn son. What's the next thing that happens? That's a, so that's a reference to the angel of death and the final plague. And anticipate the story. How were the firstborn of Israel saved from the angel of death? How were they? Through blood. And not just blood, but blood touching doorposts so that the angel passes over them. And so... They took blood, they touched its doorposts, and the angel passed over them. And so death here threatens Moses, and he's only delivered when blood touches his legs. Just as Moses was saved through the waters, anticipating the exodus, so Moses is protected from death at God's hand by blood, anticipating the Passover. Before Moses can lead the people out, he has to go through his own personal Passover, his own personal exodus. He must be fully in, all in, committed to God and his people. And if we had time, we could go even deeper than that. I think that there's stuff about circumcision here. If you want, um, back when we did Genesis, go read the, uh, the sermon on Genesis 17, why did God even do circumcision in the first place? Like, what was the purpose of that? Go read that passage, or go that, listen to that sermon and, and read that passage in Genesis 17 and think about it. Think about the ways in which God cuts off his people symbolically. It's a, circumcision is like a symbolic death before God sends the angel of death on Sodom and Gomorrah. Here again, we have a symbolic death before God sends his angel of death on Egypt. So there's layers to these stories, but I want to land the sermon here at the table with two final observations. Okay. Today's passage is thick with imagery. Like God says, don't forget the staff. Look at the leprosy. Nile into blood. God uses earthly things to demonstrate who he is and what he's done. He gives them signs so that they would believe that he was with them and that he was mighty to save. And so it is at this table. God shows us here who he is and what he's done. He shows it to us, not through serpents and staffs and leprosy, but through simple bread and simple wine. And second, in the passage, for all of its strangeness, what's the simple, obvious thing? What is clear is that blood turns aside the angel of death. When Moses' true loyalty was unclear, blood covered him and delivered him. And so it is at this table. Maybe your allegiance to God hasn't been clear. Maybe you've had one foot in and one foot out. Maybe you've not obeyed God to the full. Maybe you've coasted. Maybe you've cut corners. Maybe you've cordoned off one part. Yeah, I'm in God, but I'm not all in. This table points us to the blood that covers all of our sins and that invites us all the way in. It points us to the cross, 
to the circumcision of Christ, where he put off the body of his flesh in order that he might be raised by the mighty hand of God to deliver his people from sin and death. And so come to the table and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we don't want to let the simple keep us from the strange, and we don't want to let the strange keep us from the simple. So I pray, God, that we would see in humble simplicity that our humility is dangerous and that we can use and hide behind humility in order to keep from obeying you, just as Moses did. And then, Lord, we want to grow up into maturity and try to understand our Bibles. There's thick stuff happening all throughout the scriptures, connections between passages and structures. And so, Lord, we want to take up that call and that challenge to really know the scriptures, to to meditate on them day and night so that when we come to the strange, it lights up and you open our eyes to behold wonder in your word. And so God, show us yourself now in this table. Show us yourself. Help us to eat and drink with you. In Jesus' name, amen. As the pastors come, a reminder uh, that this meal is for the members of our church. But if you're all in with Jesus, if you've believed in him, if you've been baptized into the name of Jesus, if you've passed through the waters, this table's for you too. We want to welcome you. Uh, His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.